0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community practicing the way of Jesus and thirsting for the life he gives. Well, we're continuing our series, Tables. We've got a slide here, Journeying with Jesus through Luke's Gospel, and we're looking at a series of stories detailing Jesus at the table. So in each of these stories, Jesus is at a table sharing meals with all sorts of of characters, and today we're turning the page to Luke chapter 11, so if you have your Bible, um, that's where we will be headed, and we're looking at a table where Jesus is once again dining with a group of religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes. So we saw this a few weeks ago, Luke chapter 7, when Jesus dined with a Pharisee and the woman who loved extravagantly. How many of you remember that week? A few of you, a few of you have already forgotten, that's fine, there's a podcast for that. But in Luke 7, Jesus had some tough words for the Pharisee. And here in Luke 11, his words are again, well, we're going to see where, what Jesus has to say to this group of religious leaders. So let's get into it. Can we just dive right in? Verse 37, Luke 11, verse 37. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And when he went in and reclined at the table, there's a table, so it qualifies for the series. When the Pharisees saw this, he was surprised that Jesus had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Jesus says, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but your inside is full of greed and wickedness. Okay, shots fired, Jesus. Verse 40 You foolish ones, did he who made the outside not make the inside also, but give that which is within? as a charitable gift, and then all things are clean for you. Verse 42, he's got some more things to say. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithes of mint, rue, and every kind of garden herb, and yet you ignore justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the seat of honor in the synagogues, and personal greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unseen tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Now, if you have your Bible open to Luke chapter 11, you know that Jesus doesn't stop there, he keeps going. So he's got some things to say to this group of people, right? These are fighting words. Would you agree? Yes, these are fighting words, right? Now, We've been talking a lot about tables, what happens at the table, how friendships are formed, how hospitality is shown at the table. It's people where people come together over their differences, where forgiveness and healing take place. And then we get to Luke 11, and this table is different, right? This table is, as my daughter and I would say, kind of awkward, right? I, I don't know. I think some of us would have a hard time Being at this table, I'm kind of here for it. I'm a little bit more comfortable around conflict at times. So I'm kind of like, okay, this is, let's see what's happening here. But this this table, Jesus tells the Pharisees they're full of greed and wickedness. He calls them foolish ones. What on earth is happening here? So I'm I'm not sure many of us would feel very comfortable at that table. I might want to be there, but I'd probably feel a little bit uncomfortable being there. Now, I love this story because it shows us a side of Jesus that we don't often get to see. He's clearly impassioned, but is he having, it's like, the question is kind of like, is Jesus just having a bad day? And he's just like, I'm going to start beef with these guys, right? So is Jesus having a, a bad day and starting a beef with this group of people, or is there something else going on here. Is there something else we can learn about who Jesus is? Because I would argue that we can actually learn quite a bit about who Jesus is, what he cares about, and uh, how he interprets the story and words of scripture from this passage. So we can learn some of all these things. So what we see in this story, Jesus is invited to lunch by a Pharisee who, as I've already mentioned, was a part of the religious leaders of the day in the first century, um, ancient Near East. So we don't know why this Pharisee invited Jesus to the table. Perhaps he's curious about Jesus' message. We do know if we read through the entire Gospel of Luke that what we see here in this story is that there's the Pharisees and the scribes are both present in this story. And everywhere else in the Gospel of Luke where there is a Pharisee and a scribe in the same room, with Jesus that their posture towards him is antagonistic. So perhaps there's a curiosity about his message, but it's likely there is a hostility towards Jesus regardless of why the pharisee invited Jesus to this meal. We do know something right away in this passage. We know that they're paying close attention to what Jesus does. They're watching him. They're seeing what is he going to do? What is he not going to do? And what is, he, what is he going to say, right? So we read in verse 37 that he went in, he reclined at the table, and when the Pharisees saw this, the Pharisee was surprised. And in this instance, they're surprised by something Jesus didn't do. What didn't Jesus do? He didn't ceremonially wash before the meal, and this surprised the Pharisees. So what the Pharisees learn here about Jesus is that he doesn't always participate in the same rituals or ceremonies as they do. Another way you could look at it or another way you could say it is the Pharisees are asking a question of Jesus. And the question they're asking is this, is he one of us? Or perhaps more specifically, is he holy like us? Does he follow the same ceremonies, the same rituals that we Ourselves practice. You see, a part of the team. Now, we've already seen in this series that Jesus keeps company with some surprising people. And so the table that Jesus is setting, so to speak, is one where all sorts of people are invited to find the grace and love of God. And so when we read that the Pharisee was surprised, we probably shouldn't be surprised that Jesus doesn't act in the way that the Pharisees were expecting. But they were surprised by it. Because we know at this point in the story that Jesus is about opening paths, opening access to the love and goodness of God. And what the Pharisees were doing in some way was creating a boundary, creating a barrier. They wanted to know, are you in Or are you out? And Jesus was always about opening access, not restricting access. Are you with me? Yes. Okay. So um, in Matthew 23, uh, we read a story where Jesus is speaking to a crowd, and he speaks of the Pharisees and the scribes, and he's critiquing them. He says this is what they do. He says this is essentially what the Pharisees and the scribes have done with all of these rules, with all of these ceremonies. He says you have tied up heavy burdens, you have laid them on people's shoulders, but you're not even willing to lift a, a single finger to help them carry that weight. What you're giving people is actually a weight. You're not lifting weights off of people, you're putting weights on people. And if you continue on, he says you're, that they're hypocrites. They're, that what they're actually doing... And you can read this in the beginning of Matthew 23. He says, you're hypocrites. You slam the door of the kingdom of God shut in people's faces. So this is Jesus' perspective of what's happening here. And he's essentially saying, no, I'm not a part of that team. That is not the message. I'm about opening access. I'm about announcing the kingdom of God is here and now and available. And this is what is fueling Jesus' passion, Jesus' conviction in these passages. Jesus is announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. The Pharisees can't imagine a world in which the kingdom of God is available to a group of people who are not like them, who do not do the same things that they do, who they would consider less than pure. And so this is something we continue to learn about as we read more about Jesus' Giving of woes, or woe-giving. Thanksgiving is coming up soon, but for October we have woe-giving. So once we learn of the Pharisees' response to Jesus, which is apparently silent, Jesus knows what they're thinking, we read Jesus' response, and he doesn't mince his words. Now, the passage I mentioned just a minute ago, Matthew 23, It's actually a a portion of a parallel passage, and I think Adam mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but just as a a summary, what a parallel passage is, is there are at times stories, especially in the four Gospels, um, that are recorded more than once, and so they're looking at one account or one story, but they're kind of taking different angles. So Adam used the analogy of uh, NFL penalty review, which might be relevant to some of us, but knowing the church at the wall room, it's maybe not the most relevant, right? But they're, they're seeing the scene from different perspectives, right? So this is a, a parallel passage. So what you see when you read parallel passages is some details are included, some details are not included, um, and so there's more or less depending on what you look at. So um, that's what we see in Matthew 23, and, and when we get to Luke 11— if you read through, as I mentioned, Jesus like continues on with the woes, not just what we read, there's more. There's even more in Matthew 23. So if you're like me and you just can't get enough woes, Matthew 23 is for you. I might need some help convincing Abby and Adam to one day do a series where we can spend a week on each of the woes. Anyone into that? <laughs> I certainly would be into that. There's uh, classics in there, such as uh, Jesus says to the Pharisees. I love this. Sorry, I have to, I have to do this. He says, he says, woe to you, Pharisees, for you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you do, you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. He calls them sons of hell. Oh my goodness, Jesus. Okay, what, what else does Jesus say? He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. He says, you look good on the outside but actually people without knowing it walk over you and they become unclean themselves. We read, right, woe to you Pharisees, you're like a cup. The inside, you've made it look, or the outside, it looks good, but the inside is full of greed and evil. He calls them broods of vipers, right, all sorts of things. So Matthew 23, it's great. Now, when we get to verse 23 of Matthew 23, Matthew 23, 23, the Michael Jordan of woes, we read a slightly different version of the woe that we read in Luke 11. And we have a slide for this, Matthew 23, verse 23, where Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, teacher of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Now, let's pause there for a moment. What is going on here? The Pharisees were tithing spices? Now, There's a joy box in the back. No, no, what is going on here? Well, to answer that, I'm going to turn briefly to a passage in Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 to 23. This whole chapter kind of details a random grouping of laws. It's not particularly ordered. just this kind of a random set of laws. Um, Verse 22 of Deuteronomy 14. You shall certainly tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes from the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name, tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. Set a meal out and dedicate it to the Lord so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Have reverence, respect for God, right? So the people are instructed to take a tenth of their food, their produce, and dedicate it to God. Now, It's important to note when and where this law was given. We're not going to jump into all of it, but essentially this law was given by God to a people whom God was gathering, a community that God was creating, and he was teaching them what it meant to be human again, right? This is a group of former slaves who had been liberated Egypt, right? And they were learning rhythms in which they were reminded that they were created in the image of God, that there was dignity, freedom, grace, and goodness to be had in the presence of God. Now, the underlying principle here of Deuteronomy 14 is this, that all of life is a gift. Everything you have is a gift that has been given. And therefore, As you become aware that all things are a gift, all things are a grace, you then in turn give out of that, are free to give, right? And so this is the principle that kind of flows out of this Deuteronomy 14 law. So food then becomes representative of what is true of everything, that it is a gift. And so give 10% of your food, which is the very thing that sustains life. Now, the Pharisees took this law and many other laws to the extreme. And so what we read that they're doing is they're not only taking a tenth of the produce, but they're taking a tenth of the spices for the food. And so the Pharisees, this is the definition of being a zealot, right? They're zealous about not only following the letter of the law, but have gone above and beyond the letter of the law in order to show fidelity to it in order to show that they are pure, that they are holy. So this is what Jesus says they've done. He says, you've sought to follow the details of God's law to the smallest detail. Woe to you, Pharisees. He said, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Um, But then then, uh, he says this, yes, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Now, it's important to ask, how would Jesus have understood these words, a man who is steeped and learned in scripture? What scriptures would he have been referring to when he used these words? And there's Likely many that we could look at. I'm just going to give you a few to consider as we continue our time this morning. So the first word, justice, is taken from a, 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 actually its root would have been found in the Hebrew idea of justice, which was the Hebrew word shavat. Can you say shavat? And the action of carrying out justice was mishvat. Uh, In Proverbs 18, verse 5, we read this about justice. It is not good to be partial to the wicked, or to deprive the righteous of justice, so what do we see here? when Proverbs 18 verse five speaks of justice, well in some ways is showing partiality is injustice, right? The deprivation of rights for the, ju- for, the, for the righteous is injustice, right? So we're learning what justice is, what justice is, not Ecclesiastes 5 verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, again, the denial of rights, do not be surprised at such things for one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still. Malachi 3, verse 5. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers. A sorcerer is essentially someone who has turned away from God, adulterers, those who have been unfaithful, perjurers, those who are untruthful, against those who, and he continues his definition of, ju- of injustice, and what justice is, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, another way to say fatherless is the orphan, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. You do not fear me, says the Lord. Almighty. So when Jesus speaks to the Pharisees about neglecting the more important matters, or as another translation says, the weightier matters, when he speaks of justice, these are some of the things that would have come to mind. So what were some of those things? Just as review, partiality to the wicked, depriving of rights, oppression of the poor, defrauding of laborers, neglecting widows and orphans, not caring for foreigner, mercy, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Um, Jesus actually uses this word mercy in Matthew chapter 6 when he talks about, uh, he's, he's actually saying of the relig- religious leaders, when they do mercy, they do it out in public, out in the open so that everyone can see it. And the way that he instructs his followers, he said, when you do mercy, don't, don't do it out in public like the Pharisees do, do it in quiet, do it quietly so people don't see. And what's the action associated with this, this word, which in the Greek is the word eleos? The action associated with it is in reference to giving to the needy. Uh, we see this again in Acts chapter 3, the same word eleos is used when Peter and John are headed into the temple and they heal a man who is begging, he cries out to them. And this word for begging is actually a a form of this word, alias. It's it's a form, it's asking for mercy, asking for someone to bestow mercy upon you. So we have this word mercy associated with the action of giving to the needy. Faithfulness, briefly, is the, the Greek word pistis. And it speaks to this idea that the people of God were not only called to show fidelity to God, but were to do so in order to reflect who God is and his love to the world around them. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. This is who the people of God were called to be. Now, back to Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So Jesus' critique is that they've done so much to focus on their own personal obedience, their own morality, their own holiness, that they've actually missed it. They've neglected justice, mercy, faithfulness. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say you shouldn't care about those things. He's not saying you shouldn't care about your character, you shouldn't care about purity or morality. All of that matters. All of that's really important, right? You shouldn't have practiced the latter without, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. But what Jesus does say, how does he categorize these two things, right? You have neglected the more important matters of the law. Jesus' words, not mine. You focus so much on the details that you've actually missed it. You've missed the whole reason I've called you to be my people. It was to show and reveal God's love and goodness to the world in desperate need. They've missed it. They've missed it. They've missed the big picture of what God wants to do in the world. So this is, this is Jesus' critique and condemnation for the religious folks of his day. You've cared so much about the minute details about your own personal walk with God, your own faithfulness to God, that you've actually neglected the more important matters. Now, if only some of that had some relevance for us today. Right? Now, after this point, we get to a verse. I've always wanted to preach on this verse. I want to do a whole series on the woes just to get to verse 24. We got this. Okay, we got it. you got a sneak preview of verse 24, which reads, he continues on, woe, and he finishes right with this. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness, Mic drop, Jesus. And then he finishes with, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Okay, can we get a round of applause for Jesus there? Yes. What on earth is going on? Now, as if this could not be more absurd, in Aramaic, which Jesus likely spoke, the word for gnat and the word camel rhyme. So, Jesus finishes this woe with a pun. And so, I'm not the only one with bad dad jokes. The, the Aramaic word for gnat was gamla, and the Aramaic word for camel was kamla. So, he says, You swallow a gam, you strain out a gamla, but you swallow a kamla. Okay. Deep breaths, everyone. What? on earth is going on. Now, let's rewind a little bit. What's the setting for this conversation? Back to Luke 11. Where has Jesus been invited? And to the Pharisees. And what are they doing? They're having lunch at a table, right? Now, the Pharisees, they would have been doing something likely at this meal. They would have had a strainer on their cup that they would have used in order to prevent, they didn't want to drink any gnats, okay? They didn't want to get gnats in their wine goblets, okay? Now, why wouldn't the Pharisees want to do this? Well, for us, the answer is obvious, right? No one wants to drink a gnat, right? It's gross. Yuck. But the Pharisees had another reason. And for that, uh, we're not going to actually turn to Leviticus. If you want to fact check me, I'm going to give you the verse so you can. I'm just going to summarize it for you. Leviticus 11, another series of laws that were given. 11 verse 23, and I'm going to summarize it for you. Leviticus 11 verse 23 says this, don't drink gnats (laughs) or any other kind of thing that's like a gnat. Leviticus 11 verse 23. Leviticus 11 verse 4, you can read this if you want. In fact, if you want another verse to kind of commit to memory this week, I think Matthew 23 verse 24, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. It's a good one. Good contender, but if you want another one, Leviticus 11 verse 4 is another good one. I'm going to summarize that for you as well. Don't eat camel, okay? Again, for many of us, probably not uh, the biggest temptation, right? So Leviticus 11, for the Pharisee, we were learning everything was about being right with God. Pure, holy, etc. This is like what they were doing to be kosher. But they had created all of these rituals and customs around the law. Additionally, right, putting on the strainer, taking off the strainer, putting on the strainer. So this is what is taking place in Luke 11 when Jesus is reclining at the table. Woe to you, Pharisees. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a kamla, right? Okay, Jesus says you're so consumed with your own personal holiness, cleanliness, that you don't drink out out any gnats, but in the process, you've neglected the bigger issues of the suffering of the world, and you've missed it the more important matters. And because of that, you are actually not right before God. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, considering this table, considering the difficult words of Jesus, a question, and you can you're taking notes if you have a journal. Take this question with you. What would it look like to be a church that cares about, as Jesus would put it, the more important matters of justice mercy, and faithfulness? What would it look like? What would it look like to be a church? I don't, I'm not going to give you an answer right now. That's why you have to write that question down, take it, because hopefully we can try to answer that question together. What does it look like to be a church that cares about, as Jesus would put it, the weightier matters of the law? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. I wonder how the words of Jesus, although difficult, might be a source of life and vitality for the church. Now, the way that we articulate the type of church that we want to be is distilled into three parts. And unlike a New Place's vision statement, which sounds complicated to memorize, ours is fairly simple. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. Do what Jesus did. And when we began introducing these words to our church family, we also started to do some other things. We began to lean into this idea of what would it look like to be a church that focused on like spiritual practices, spiritual formation. And so you might have heard us use languages where we talk about spiritual formation or what does it look like to be, to, to walk with Jesus in a contemplative sort of faith or life. Now, here's the issue. I don't take issue with that vision statement. I was a part of help dreaming up that vision statement for our church and and asking God, what kind of church do we want to be? But here's a temptation, and I think it's important for us to not forget that it's not just about us as individuals or even us as an entire church that God is concerned with. Yes, it's important, character formation, uh, learning how to walk with God as we incorporate spiritual practices into our life, learning what it looks like to step into the wholeness, the shalom that God invites us into as individuals. And and of course, you know, we we can't truly be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did if we are insular and self-focused, but I think it's important to name that there is a temptation there for it to become so. How many of you are with me? So, we ask the question, what would it look like to be a church that cares about the weightier matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness? Now, we're going to wrap up. How many of you are excited for that? But before we conclude, I would just like to acknowledge the horrifying news um, coming out of Israel and Palestine. I know this is weighing on likely a lot of your hearts. It has certainly been weighing on my heart as well. Uh, I would say it's a weighty matter and an important matter that people of faith should not neglect. Now, here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not sure I could, and frankly, I don't have the energy to like just give you all a statement that captures the tragedy and nuance of this situation. I'll say this. My heart breaks for Israel. It breaks for my Jewish brothers and sisters and the innocent lives and the children whom have lost their lives, and my heart breaks for Palestine and my Palestinian brothers and sisters and the innocent lives that have been lost. I was reminded this week, um, I took this picture five-ish years ago um, in Jerusalem, and this was just taken from like a Instagram story archive that I had tagged with this verse. And I can't stop thinking about this verse this week, but It's a story in Luke 19 when when Jesus approached Jerusalem. He saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. They they did not know. And, And, you know, I think Jesus weeps over Jerusalem right now. I think he weeps over Gaza right now. So instead of giving you a bunch of words that fall short, of the gravity of the situation, I would like to provide you with some resources that have been helpful to me as I've processed this news over the last week. Resources for what what do we do as we weep with Jesus. Uh, Earlier this week, Relevant Magazine published a short interview with a a man named Todd Dethridge, and he was the co-founder of an organization called Telos Group, and uh, they're committed to educating policymakers about the situation in Israel-Palestine. They've been doing so for um, a long time now, and they promote a peaceful, nonviolent solution in the Middle East. And here are some takeaways that I found helpful from Todd's response. And this is actually in response to a question. The question that he was asked was, what should Christians be hoping for in this situation? And these were just four takeaways that I took from his response. We should hope for an end to the violence There is no violent solution to this conflict. Second takeaway, we should hope for a growing recognition that all are made in the image of God and that human life is sacred. Third takeaway, we should hope for a future in which Israelis and Palestinians enjoy security, freedom, and honor, dignity in equal measure. Fourth takeaway, we should also remember that hope is not a feeling or an emotion, or just a belief that everything's going to be all right. Hope is not passive, it's what you do. It's paying attention to the weightier matters, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Now, I can't do homework for you. If you want a resource that's a good resource, TellusGroup.org has some great educational resources if you'd like to be educated on what is going on further. Second resource I'd like to provide you with is a statement from the head of churches in Jerusalem of the escalating humanitarian crisis in Gaza. You know what we're going to do? You can have that up there and read it for a second, but you just search for this on Twitter or on Google. Just take a picture of it right now. You're going to read it another time because I want to value and honor your time here with us this morning. But a beautiful ecumenical response to the situation from leaders in the area. You can also find um, uh, resources. So, uh, Munther Isaacs, he's the name of a Palestinian Christian theologian um, who's written about this issue. So if you want to hear um, perspective from a Palestinian voice, I'd encourage you to listen. The last thing, um, and this is what I will leave you with, um, is the Shema, and this was adapted from uh, a pastor named A.J. Well, the the Shema actually comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, but um, this is a practice I learned from uh, A.J. Sherrill. Now, around 2,000 years ago, uh, the Shema dates back longer than that, but faithful Jews and likely early Christians began a practice of covering their eyes and praying the Shema. Covering their eyes, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and also love your neighbor as yourself. And when they were done praying, they would remove the hand. And the reason that they were um, began this practice of covering their eyes it was with the intention of concentrating on what is truest about us and the world, that God loves us and that God loves the world. And so as you do so, you're able to focus on the important matters. So to speak, and when we remove our hand from covering our eyes, we are then able to see the world through that perspective, that we are loved by God and that God loves the world and cares deeply about these matters, right? And so it's a simple practice, uh, that I would encourage you to make some time for this week, so um, you can take a picture of that. You can turn to Deuteronomy chapter six and read verse four and five, um, and it's fairly quick and easy to memorize. And this is something uh, you can take ten seconds to do, even twice a day, once in the morning, once at night. Right. So this is a simple practice, and it bec- become a guide for us as we hear the invitation to focus on the more important matters, knowing that we are loved by God and the world around us and then removing our hands so we can now see the world through his perspective. Um, I'm going to invite the band up and we're going to pray. God, we thank you for Luke chapter 11, Matthew chapter 23, and uh, there are some strange things in there, God, and we're grateful for those because they make us laugh. Um, They also sit weighty upon us as we reflect on our own lives and what it looks like to be a church that cares about the more important matters of justice, mercy, faithfulness, God. And so may we hear the invitation. May we hear, um, as you hear, um, we know from Exodus chapter 2, God, that you are a God who hears the cry of the oppressed God. And so I pray that we would be a church who hears that very same cry and who responds by caring about justice, mercy, faithfulness, God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. You're listening to the official podcast of Church of the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church of the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at www.wellchurchvt.org.